And good morning, everyone, and welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight. That magical time between dusk and dawn when absolutely anything can happen. And as I've said many, many times in the last several years, and it's no longer confined between dusk and dawn because it's spilling over into daylight and you're seeing it on Fox and CNN and MSNBC and PBS and CBS, ABC, NBC, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. One of the curious things which, in fact, has spilled over, and why is that doing that, okay? Uh, that should not be doing that. See, the crazy time, you know, should not be doing that. All right, why is that? Oh, I can't even seem to. Okay, let me do this. There we are. Okay. Nope, that should not do that. See, that's a harbinger of things to come, because tonight is going to be a very experimental program. Uh, We're going to try to do a couple things tonight that we have never done before. One is present some major scientific information that we've been, you know, working on very assiduously for the last several months, because when I first tripped over this, I said, there's no way this, this delivery cannot be, this cannot be reality. But in keeping with all the other things that are going on that can't be reality, um, as we worked our way into this, and I kind of bounced it off a couple of people, and I talked to some doctors who do not want to come within nine light years of this yet, at least on the air, I realized that we had discovered something of seminal importance, even if tonight, I got to admit, I don't know what the hell it means. I really don't know what it means, but... There is no, and you're going to hear this in more detail later in the show, there is no right answer. It's like either way this comes out, it's an amazing discovery and something that every one of you listening with your computer and your access to the Internet, and we posted some links that we'll talk about in a minute, you will be able to replicate, to duplicate, to verify, to confirm And I want your emails. I really want your emails because I'm going to read some of them uh, tomorrow night at the top of the show. uh, And then we'll read them in the following weeks as more people kind of get into this and take a look and tell me if I'm really, really totally crazy or we've discovered something really profound. Um, Anyway. Moving into news, uh, normally I wouldn't do this, but because it's so bizarre and in keeping with every other bizarre thing going on, I thought I would put it at the top, and then you'll think about it in the back of your mind, and we'll discuss it at some length in the last uh, 20 minutes or 15 minutes of the show. There's an announcement is item number one in radio with pictures in my items. For you new listeners, and thank you to Clyde Lewis for an extraordinarily a uh, fun show last night uh, on his show with uh, with Chandra Wickramasinghe. I discovered something interesting. You pronounce the G-H-E at the end. I never knew that. Anyway, Chandra and I were guests of uh, Clyde, and we talked to a really fascinating audience for a couple hours, and then we had a kind of an after-show chat, which wound up in Facebook. That will all be posted, if it hasn't already been, at the top of uh, our homepage here so you can all listen to what Chandra and I discussed with Clyde. Uh, One of the things we discussed was this bizarre announcement that came out this week from WABC in New York, 77 WABC. 
They are launching a talk show backed by a major broadcast corporation, and they've decided to call it The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Moreno, who's the host. And there's a rundown of some of the guests they're going to have. They've already had, uh, they're, they're planning to have Roger Stone. Hey, we had Roger years ago. What is a major corporation, the flagship station of the ABC radio network doing, basically stealing the title of this show? Um, just kind of think about that for the next two or three hours, and we'll talk about it toward the end of this show. And I'll give you some ideas as well as some other people will as to what you, the audience of the original, can do. Because obviously there's an agenda here, and we'll kind of debate that when we when we get to that part of the program. Moving on. Item number two is really, really, really important tonight. This is going to be a focus of a lot of our discussion. This is the direct link to the European CDC for political reasons and tampering by the Trump administration with the science coming out of our CDC, we have made a deliberate effort to avoid the politics surrounding the confusion going on in Atlanta. And we have gone to the Europeans, which is a consortium of, you know, many, many nations, over a dozen nations who have put together an extraordinary world-class central data repository um, of medical statistics, including the numbers of deaths from COVID-19. And when we get into the details of that, uh, I will will come back to it. You're going to want to click on that link, and there is an interactive graph that I'm going to walk you through so you can check our data. You can check our methodology. You can do the comparisons I'm going to talk about. You can do it all yourself, and then you're going to send us email and tell us independently what you have found. Item number three, this is actually two items in one. I don't have a second one up there, but you don't need it. All you have to do is go outside. We'll do number two first, and then we'll go back to this one. If you look up in the night sky right now, in the eastern skies, if it's clear, if you're already outside on a smartphone listening to us as you're lying in some easy lawn chair looking up at the starry night where you are, that brilliant reddish object is the planet Mars, which is closer this week than it has been for 17 years since the last opposition, since Robert and I visited in a most spectacular way the Lowell Observatory. And because of her inability to take no for an answer, Robin was the one who basically talked us inside after they had said, you know, knowing who I am, Oh, my God, no, we can't have Hoagland here. She literally talked them down off the ceiling, and we conducted observations, including video and television imaging, and an interview with a major reporter from, I think it was one of the London papers. I, I At the moment, I forget which one. Anyway, we were doing this all 17 years ago during the closest approach of Mars to the Earth in 2003, in 60,000 years. And it's, it, it's, a, it's an extraordinary memory. Anyway, tonight, Mars is up there again. It comes closest to Earth, not as close as it was uh, 17 years ago. And it will not be that close again, certainly in our lifetime. And 
for many, many lifetimes. I mean, how long is 60,000 years? It has to do with the way the orbits process. And we're talking like a few thousand miles, not millions, but, you know, close is close and closest is closest if you're keeping those records. Anyway, this opposition of Mars, this closest approach, is going to be the closest for another 35 years, which means a lot of our audience listening tonight will be able to stand outside in 35 years and look up and see Mars again. And what in the world will we see? Will Elon Musk have his spaceships on the surface? Will there be beginnings of an actual Martian city? Will we have confirmation of all the artifacts littering the surface of Mars, which 99.999% of the world has no idea about yet? But they're going to, if our political predictions vis-a-vis what could happen when the three unmanned robotic missions currently en route to Mars tonight, the United Arab Emirates Mission Hope, the um, Chinese mission, basically called in Chinese to touch heaven, to question heaven, and our mission, the NASA mission called Perseverance, all those missions are going to arrive next February. And it's that point that I believe the countdown clock to revealing what is really there will begin. Which brings us now back to item number three, because this is an extraordinary coincidence, which, you know, my conspiratorial bent says is probably not a coincidence. Um, a few weeks ago, about, well, almost a month, there was a major stunning scientific announcement by two teams of radio astronomers located in different parts of the world using two different radio telescope facilities, state of the art. And they both looked at Venus in the radio part of the spectrum and they detected the radio absorption line, just like an optical spectrum has little black lines across it, which are optical absorptions of energy uh, from, from bright surfaces behind it. Well, they looked in the radio part of the spectrum along the equator of Venus, which is basically a twin of Earth, but it spins backward and so much more slowly in 243 days as opposed to the prograde spin of Earth in 24 hours. Anyway, they looked at the radio bright belts of clouds around Venus equator and they detected an absorption due to a little molecule called phosphine, which is composed of one phosphorus atom and three hydrogens. And this immediately caused an explosion of interest and excitement and, may I say, trepidation in the scientific community, the mainstream guys, because, guys and gals I should include, because this was touted as a potential signature, a biosignature for extraterrestrial life in planets circling stars light years away, hundreds of light years, thousands of light years away as part of the ongoing, you know, efforts all over the world now to pin down the, the locations, orbits, masses, atmospheric compositions, etc., of what are called exoplanets, planets orbiting other stars kind of like the sun, although a lot of them are much, much dimmer, and it's easier to detect those because one of the ways you detect planets is with the do-si-do technique, where the star and the planet are orbiting each other, 
and you measure with a spectrograph the radial displacement, the so-called Doppler shift of those dark lines in the spectrum, and thereby you can derive the mass and the period of the object which is tugging at the star, which is waltzing around it in orbit, because the two objects do not, you know, maintain their same motion through space. They basically orbit each other, and so they both alternately come toward the Earth and go away from the Earth. And if you monitor the star, you can tell the parameters of the invisible object, the planet, or planets, plural, that are orbiting that star if the star's mass is not overwhelmingly great and the planet has a detectable gravitational effect as it waltzes around the common, what's called, barycenter of the star-planet combination. Well, they were using Venus, these two teams, as a kind of a check uh, on the idea that if we, you know, with the Webb telescope, which can look deeply into the infrared, is much bigger than Hubble, is in going to be in a vacuum in space, so we'll have a totally clear, transparent view of distant uh, exoplanets. It'll be actually be able to look at and sample spectroscopically the atmospheres of these remote worlds by looking at the absorptions and emissions of light. And one of the molecules that was proposed as a biosignature, given that on Earth it only is produced in two ways. One is through biology. Microbes in the guts of certain mammals by their microbes, apparently um, penguins in their um, poop have phosphine, which I found kind of intriguing. Anyway, and the other way, of course, is through factories. You know, you can make it artificially with energy and, you know, big stores of hydrogen and phosphorus and all that, but it's very energy intensive. And there are no really known natural sources for phosphine on Earth, which we've looked at, you know, molecular compositions for many centuries, other than biology or by extension, artificial biology, i.e., you know, intelligence, making it by means of, you know, factory industrial type process. Well, lo and behold, when these two separate teams looked at Venus, there was phosphine absorbing right at the right frequency in the radio part of the spectrum to correspond to this extraordinarily interesting and indicative molecule. And I'm, I'm kind of amused because the instant reaction from a lot of other scientists was, oh, well, there's got to be another explanation. There's a source we haven't found. Again, you know, this is changing the rules of the game in mid-flight. If you've been looking at the Earth's environment for hundreds of years and you've only found two sources of phosphine, both of which are ultimately traceable only to life, and then you find it on another world, why do the rules allow you to change the game and say, oh, but there's got to be a natural source we just haven't thought of yet? Uh-uh, that's not the way the game is played. So in my mind, and in Chandrawick Ramasinghe's mind, the presence of phosphine is evidence, really profound, compelling evidence, that in fact, humanity, mainstream science, has discovered the first bona fide agreed upon indication of life beyond the earth. That's it. 
game match set. Now, obviously, we want more confirmation. And at the moment, the radio observations, even though they're independent, looked at the same radio absorption line in the radio part of the spectrum. So what we would like is other confirmation by phosphine absorptions, let's say, in the infrared or in the visible part of the spectrum. Well, it just so happens, and this is where my conspiratorial bump is really itching tonight, it just so happens in the next two weeks, next Wednesday, next Wednesday or Thursday, I haven't got a calendar. Uh, actually, I do. It's Thursday. On the 15th of October, a joint mission, a spacecraft unmanned robotic mission sponsored by the European Space Agency and the Japanese Space Agency is going to fly by Venus within 6,000 miles en route to reducing its orbit to eventually go into orbit around the planet Mercury, which will happen uh, in 2025, I think. Now, I just find it interesting that as a, as a quote, coincidence, this announcement came one month before this interesting Bepi Colombo, that's the name of the spacecraft, flyby which has an instrument, a spectrometer on board, which if they look at Venus, and they've already planned as part of their swing-by science practicing to look at Venus, is capable, we are told, if they make a few little adjustments, uh, perhaps, perchance, possibly, just maybe, detecting and confirming phosphine in another part of the spectrum. And basically, it's a matter of signal-to-noise. Um, one of the um, articles, I think it's the one that we have listed there, you know, that says, in a complete fluke, a European spacecraft is about to fly past Venus and could look for signs of life. That's the phosphine detection scenario. It says the instrument is marginally capable of doing this. Well, that right there is a kind of a kind of a lie, because how do you get a marginal detection to be a sure detection? The answer is you increase your exposure time. I mean, picture it. Venus is about the size of Earth, maybe a few hundred miles smaller. They're going to fly past it within 6,000 miles, which is within the diameter of Venus, which means it will appear in the, shall we say, the field of view of the instruments, you know, about 50, 40 degrees across, which is... Um, 80 times bigger than the full moon is seen from Earth. And all you have to do is, and I'm using metaphors here, open the shutter and take a time exposure spectrogram. And the little phosphine lines should leap out. But they're making a big deal that, well, it's, um, you know, the observations were set. They can't make any changes. You mean to tell me for the up and down honor the glory of confirming the first biological potential signature in the solar system that you won't make the time to make the computer changes and send the commands to the spacecraft to simply change some of the observations so you can in fact confirm what is the rage in the science community that could be there and could mean everything don't buy it i think the announcement a month ago was timed so that the Bepi Colombo scientists could make changes in this flyby sequence, because it's all this is, is 
computer, changing things on the ground, sending the commands up to the spacecraft, recording it there, sending it back to you, make sure you didn't make a mistake. And they had a month to do that, a whole month. And given the stakes and given how easy it is, my bet is in the next few weeks, maybe two weeks after the flyby, which is next Thursday, we're going to get an announcement from the Bepi Colombo team that they indeed have confirmed the um, presence of phosphine in the upper cloud decks, roughly 30 miles above the seething hot surface of Venus, 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Pressure is almost 100 times the pressure of the air you're breathing tonight. And it's not air. It's mostly, 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 mostly carbon dioxide. Again, the stakes are major. The time frame was more than adequate. My bet is they're doing it, but they just don't want to be held to account in case they blow it. And so they're giving themselves a little out there. Oh, well, the signal to noise wasn't good enough. We'll try next August when they do the Venus flyby to reduce the orbit size and get to Mercury again. Needless to say, stay tuned, and we'll be right on top of this. Speaking in a um, uh, spatial vein, continuing with that uh, uh, contexting, item number four. This is just a really cool, cool story. There is an amateur photographer who takes really cool astronomical pictures. Um, He had to travel from Philadelphia three and a half hours a few days ago to try to get one of his lifelong dreams was a rocket photographed at night, climbing through the darkness, seen against a full moon. And he succeeded. So emblematically, given what we know was is on the moon, waiting for him, probably Musk, because he's going to get there first. Um, I thought we'd post this story tonight. And you know, look at the photographs he took there. It's an amazing sequence. And the timing, the whole, the whole thing is really an amazing story. And it's an example of citizen scientists Science at its best. Okay, items five, six, seven. Uh, let me refresh my uh, my uh, page here. Okay, item number five, and then we'll move on to we're going to talk about this evening. Um, also next week on the twentieth, the little asteroid explorer um, Osiris Rex, which has been bumping around the asteroid Bennu for the last couple of years, is going to finally take a sample and begin a journey to bring the sample back to Earth for arrival in the next couple, three years. What makes this really interesting is that the uh, science evidence uh, accumulated from the remote observations of the uh, Rex spacecraft, which had been orbiting Bennu, little thousand-mile, thousand-foot-wide asteroid for the last couple of years, They are saying freely that the surface is littered with organics, amino acids, carbon, and signs of water all over the place. In other words, little Bennu somehow only a thousand feet across with a surface gravity of one eight millionths that of Earth has managed to have running water, produce carbonates, produce Uh, other mineralogical evidences of the interaction of water with other compounds. Um, Well, when they get the sample, 
and it's on its way home. We'll then tackle the Bennu story, but it's there's a lot more there than is spoken of in this article, but the article does describe the mainstream science that they are going to pursue. Items six, seven, eight are going to be saved for the rest of the program. And so without further ado, let me introduce my guests. This morning, we're joined by Georgia Lambert, who, as I've said many, many times before, is our kind of resident metaphysician. And I wanted to have a metaphysical perspective on our discussion tonight of the big picture. So there's a very long bio there, which, Georgia, I think we probably have to change, make it shorter and more pointed. The really crucial part of uh, Georgia's bio is that for 10 years, she worked with Manley Palmer Hall, probably the best known of American esotericists and in the Philosophical Research Institute there in Los Angeles. And uh, that's all they kind of have to say, because it's going to be her perspective calling upon a lot of, shall we say, earlier sources, including some that are very old, that are kind of addressing what's going on tonight, this last four years, this century, this moment in time, in terms of what I've been calling the big picture. And then to counterpoint that, we're going to be joined by Laura London, who has studied experimental psychology at the University of Washington and earned her undergraduate degree in neuro. Uh, physiology, I'm sorry, neuropsychology from a private Jesuit university. She's been working in neurology, neuroimaging, and nuclear medicine at the University Hospitals of Cleveland and its VA Psychiatric Hospital. She has had uh, about a 17-year Jungian analysis, sending her deeply into the world of Jung and other psychiatrists and psychologists. And you can read the rest of her bio there. So, guys, um, why don't you both say hello, and then we'll, uh, you know, have a conversation with Georgia, and at the appropriate time, we will bring Laura in for her Jungian perspective. Welcome to the other side of midnight. Good evening, Richard. Hi, Richard. Good evening, good morning, whatever the case may be. Okay, um, Georgia, before I launch into the science of, of what I think is driving a lot of what's going on, Let's kind of get people used to this big picture idea. You and I have had many conversations, and you have said often, oh, this is the accomplishment, the accumulation, the confirmation of so-and-so, or this was predicted many years ago by so-and-so. Why don't we kind of begin tonight on that note and tell us about how this particular time, which seems so freaky and so weird and so anomalous, and as Robert Heinlein once wrote, uh, in, in terms of this this social, you know, manifestation, he called them the crazy years. Why don't we talk a little bit about how this actually has been forecast from long before? Well, I think the place to start is the biggest picture I can reach for, because what we're looking at. And just now, get a little closer to your mic, if you could. Okay, I've got a headset on. Is that better? Mm, say some more. One, two, three, four. Okay, okay that's better. Yeah. Okay. Sorry about that. <clears throat> um, I think we should start with the biggest picture that I can possibly reach for, um, because what's going on right in front of us now is just a small cycle within several bigger cycles. 
that are all dovetailing into one another at this particular point in time and space. Um, this means that I have to start with something way out there and very metaphysical um, that doesn't have scientific proof yet, but as many of your readers know, um, early in the 60s and 70s, you had books like the Tao of Physics and Dancing Ruli Masters, which is bringing physics back into metaphysics and joining them again. So a lot of what I have to start with uh, cannot be proven and therefore must be taken with a, a large grain of salt, but it is the metaphysical position uh, starting with the larger cycles so that we can understand what these smaller cycles are. I'll tell you what, we're at the bottom of the hour, so let's hold it there. That's an appropriate tease, the appropriate setup. My guest this morning is Georgia Lambert, and we'll bring on Laura London shortly. We're trying to grasp the, the ungraspable. Is there something really special about this time? Why these things are all happening now. When we return, we'll grapple with the ingrappleable. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. See Hoagland here. I'd like you to support The Other Side of Midnight by subscribing to Club 19.5 and thereby joining our unique and growing radio community. Tune in to listen to our fascinating guests, pioneers on the out there edge of science and thought, and gain access to exclusive member benefits. To do this, just visit our website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the navigator bar or in the left-hand column. Membership costs $19.95 per month. That's 33 tetrahedral cents a day. I mean, it's the price of a couple of cups of coffee. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to this show and literally hundreds of previous shows on hundreds of different topics going back to 2015 that we have done. Our archive shows have the commercials removed and you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the 19-point archives if you prefer. To enhance your listener experience, a new The Other Side of Midnight podcast is being added to all show pages, which will allow you to instantly search the show archives of Radio with Pictures, thus easily accessing the corresponding show. Plus, you can just as quickly access the entire podcast list when you're on the go. 
I want to personally thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your continuing support, this show would literally not be on the air. Please continue supporting the broadcast to provide you with the most interesting conversation available, talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought, and if you like what you hear on the other side of midnight, tell your friends and continue growing the show by having them subscribe to Club 19.5 as well, because we need all of you. And when I say we need you, you're the reason we're doing all this. Oakland, over and out. And welcome back, everyone, to The Other Side of Midnight. The big picture show for this October 10th, 2020. You know, I, I've often used the term my grandmother used, which is that uh, time is God's way of keeping everything from happening at once. And if you look around, anyway, one could draw the inference that maybe God is on vacation. Because every time you wake up and turn on news, something unprecedented, something shattering, something remarkable, something that has, in the words of many, many commentators, never happened before, is happening now. The question is, is it happening again? Georgia? (laughs) Well, as I said before the break, uh, we need to go really big and wide at first, and you'll have to let me roll out a few things. Um, Hey, we have three hours, well, two and a half. (laughs) before we can understand where we, where we are today. Um, we know that, for instance, the human being uh, has an energy body that underlies the physical, that is part of the acupuncture system. Uh, it shows up in Kirlian photography. But this is true of all organized life. And all organized life in the energetic aspect has organs Uh, to that life. In the human being, we call them chakras. Now, the organized life of our solar system, the planets are, in a sense, the chakras for that particular system. On a planet, the kingdoms in nature are, in a sense, the chakras of that system. If we look at an acorn, we know that within that acorn is the completed picture of the oak tree in its adulthood. And we know that if we put that acorn in the ground and give it proper sun and water, it will become that oak tree, meaning that the pattern of completion is there, but that completion is worked out sequentially. Well, so it is with the unfolding life of a planet. We know from our you know, grade school science that at one time the earth, at least in its physical aspect, was the mineral kingdom, you know, the molten seas and volcanic activity and all that. And as the eons went by, this paved the way for the vegetable kingdom. And we had the great fern forests and primeval environments. And that paved the way for the animal kingdom. And uh, it's continuing its unfoldment. And finally, we have humanity. Well, things don't stop with us. In terms of the big picture, 
from a metaphysical standpoint, the next kingdom in nature is in its infancy of unfolding. And it's unfolding within the human kingdom. And this is the kingdom of conscious souls. It means a major shift in human identification. Every expansion of consciousness, um, collectively and individually, is a greater identification with and within the larger life, the one life in which we live, move, and have our being. In the little cycle that we're in now, which is the beginning of this new unfolding kingdom, which is being born within humanity, a new identity, a new relationship, a wider relationship with the one life. What we're seeing now is humanity nosing into the next layer or spectrum of matter. Uh, the physics that you talk about, Richard, you know, the, the, um, the physics of the torsion field that you've measured in places around the Earth, um, the ideas about ley lines, uh, other dimensions. This is a part, only a small part, but it is a part of this expanding envelope of identity and what we think of as reality. This is supposed to take place over the next 2,500 years, this age that we're moving into called many things, the age of Aquarius being one of them. And the first third of this 2,500-year period is a period fraught with much upheaval because there's a lot of resistance uh, to this next unfolding. And what we're seeing in religious forms and political forms and social forms and economic forms is the resistance of that new awareness and identity. You could say it's the old guard fighting back to maintain the status quo. And what we're going through now, and will be for a little time yet, is this battle between things that want to stay the same and this new horizon that is opening up not only for humanity, but the planetary life itself. Hmm. Let me ask a question. Where did the number 2,500 years come from? And where does the fraction one-third of that time kind of getting used to the new order or the new, you know, normal, where did that come from? Well, the, the 2,500 years is, is approximate. And it relates to um, the zodiacal ages uh, to so, some degree. So, so it relates to the precession cycle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because exactly. canonically, these ages, the 12 ages, are really 2160 years, not 2500. And they're even shorter now because the precession cycle is not 25,920 years, which is the mathematically perfect you know, model it's down to maybe 25,840, according to the latest measurements that I've gotten from JPL, which means the cycle is a little faster. The, that that the window you know, between the ages, the 2160 is now probably you know, maybe down to 2,000, give or take. And the right. acclimation period, I've heard from Vedic sources, is much, much smaller. I had a, 
uh, a guest on, I think a year or two ago, who said that um, that interregnum period is as short as maybe five to 10 years before things settle down to the new age. So I'm just wondering where this one, because it seems to me, you know, hundreds of years getting used to the new physics is much too long, either mathematically or even intuitively to kind of get people who have a gestation period of 20, 20 years, you know, the, the standard gen generation, why would it take hundreds of years once you get past the kind of turbulence of the bow wake to mix our metaphors madly? Well, it could be a lot of different things. Uh, first and foremost, uh, cycles aren't cut and dried. They overlap one another. Uh, also, we know that within human activity, that as you proceed along the path of spiritual development, things speed up. Your life speeds up. It's like a, an ice skater drawing their arms in to spin faster. Mm -hmm. So it would certainly make sense that this would also uh, relate to a planetary life. And so it's quite possible that cycles that, you know, thousands of years ago uh, took thousands of years uh, are speeded up as everything is, is growing and evolving at a much greater rate than ever before. See, there's another very different way to approach this, and you mentioned this, this physics I've been looking at for a long time. Um, the analogy with vibrations, frequency, and, and the torsion field, which affects consciousness, which is that link that we're always talking about. The, the alternative metaphor is what we call in uh, ham radio something called heterodyning, meaning when you mix two frequencies together, you get a third but it doesn't gradually grade one into the other. It suddenly jumps. Right. And my prediction is, given all that we're going through right now, when we get to the other side of this turbulence, it's not going to be a generation or even hundreds of years. It's going to be like night and day. It's going to be like a heterodyning frequency jump. And suddenly everybody the old folks, the new folks, the new consciousness, the oh, it's all going to find itself in a new milieu, a new environment, a new consciousness background. And, you know, the old fogies will have trouble getting used to it, but the new folks are going to fit right in because, well, there's a whole bunch of reasons why they may fit right in. But again, these are two very different views of the changes that are coming. You're saying it's gradual. I'm saying it could be like tomorrow morning, like that. Well, I, I don't think it's either or. It could it can be a both. You know, the how can the you Bible, have something gradual? How can you have something gradual and instantaneous happening simultaneously? Well, the the Bible talks about things happening in the twinkling of an eye. Yes, they do. So that is certainly possible. Um, Traditional metaphysical writings talk about time when, as humanity was developing, we couldn't see all the colors that we can see today, and we couldn't hear all of the sounds that we can hear today. As we grow and develop, our senses are extending, so it's not really extrasensory perception, it's extended sensory perception. Mm. And so uh, one of the uh, senses that is being extended into this 
new level of the field is what's called etheric perception. And this means that more and more children, as we progress, will be born with the ability to see things with their physical eyes that normally couldn't have been seen before. Can you imagine the effect on consciousness if people could all of a sudden see ley lines or if they could see the electrical connections between people and to actually see that we're all connected and that what our thoughts and feelings um, that are radiating out from us, the effects of that, it would change our behavior fairly quickly. Well, there are a number of people who do, you know, apparently have that ability, that talent. You know, they see auras, et cetera, et cetera. But it's a very tiny fraction of the population. The question, of course, is, is it just because those are the people who have that sensory system in place? Or do most people have it? And because of cultural repression, they just don't exercise it. It's like a muscle that's never used. So they don't even try to see if they can see auras and that kind of thing. I think everybody has the ability, of course, just like any other talent, you know, painter or a musician, uh, some people are just better at it than others. Some are more naturally talented than others. But I think everybody has this ability. Now, if you go back in uh, folklore and tradition, it says that at one time, everybody had this ability and it was shut down for a while so Mm. that we could develop other things. But it's now starting to awaken again. And Mm. how fast this happens I think depends on how we lend ourselves to it. And the idea that it was shut down could be a metaphor for the physics simply made it very, very difficult. And when you move to the next cycle, the physics opens up the window, the doorway, and what was, quote, repressed suddenly can flourish. Exactly. Okay. Continue. Again, I think where we find ourselves today is in this conflict between, you know, that part of humanity that is lending itself to this new process uh, and the part of humanity that is still identifying with what is known. You know, there's a thing within humanity that that the unknown is so scary to, to people that they're willing to stay with the known, even if the known is painful and negative, it's better than the unknown because the unknown is scary. Hmm. Um, And so that's affecting humanity, I think, to a great degree. Plus the fact that the powers that be that have organized the systems of the world um, don't want that to change. And yet here we are with things like this virus showing us that, you know, we are a one family and it's a one life on this planet. And, you know, when, when humanity is forced to shut down for a while, the, the damage that we've done to this planet heals itself quite quickly. You know, in another show, we were talking about how uh, people in India are seeing the Himalayas for the first time in 30 years and because the air is, is clearing out and, and um, the, the waters in Venice were clear enough for dolphins to be spotted. Hmm. So, you know, um, uh, again, we're having this conflict between 
this new way of looking at things, which is a more inclusive way, uh, again, seeing family not as them and us, but as a one life uh, with all the, our diversity, but yet a one life connected to each other uh, and affecting one another and our relationship to the planet, which is a living thing that we are stewards of, not owners of. Hmm. You know, one way to reconcile the idea of a sudden change versus a gradual change is that the physics may change suddenly, but everyone who's kind of attuned to the old system, they are resisting, and it's the new kids on the block, you know, consciousness being born in 3D that are in resonance with the new physics. Remember some years ago there was a big kind of uh, brouhaha about uh, what was it? They called them ultraviolet kids or something. Oh, indigo children. In, 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 you know, I've seen indigo violet. Yeah, okay. Yeah. You know, ultraviolet is a physicist way of talking about indigo. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to artists, Kinthea. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, um, I had a producer friend in New York who had a child, and it was astonishing to watch this kid develop. You know, kind of like a laboratory of one, and it really gave me. Um, background to appreciate the idea of indigo children really somehow were different. Well, the forerunners of where we all are, are heading. Hmm. All of us or only those that are in tune with the physic environment as it is changing. We yeah. all have the opportunity, whether we all choose to take that opportunity is part of our own choices. Ah, see, you mentioned the magic word, choice. Yep. It's about choice. So even old dogs can be taught new tricks if they want to learn. Absolutely. But it's very painful. It's very hard for a lot you of know, people. You know, in, in, in uh, part of the metaphysical model here, uh, it, it's says that, and this is from some Eastern systems, it talks about the spiritual hierarchy of this planet, those that are involved in helping humanity and guiding humanity, whether they be called the communion of saints or as the Rosicrucians during the Middle Ages called them the invisible college, whatever you want to call them, they exist or are divided into three basic offices called the Manu, the Bodhisattva, or Christ, and the Mahakohan. And the office of the Bodhisattva is the office that oversees the expansion of consciousness uh, and soul development. The Manu uh, oversees the rising and sinking of continents, the mutation and uh, ex uh, extinction of species of plants and animals, the Mahakohan has to do with human civilization. And it seems that in terms of human expansion and growth, we always are given the choice of learning and growing uh, and making positive choices under the office of the Mahakohan as we create civilizations that are more equitable and more inclusive and are step-by-step -step moving into that greater uh, acknowledgement of the one life. We always have the choice to learn through 
those methods. But when we don't take them, then our learning uh, is transferred into the department of the Manu. And we have things like viruses and pandemics and natural disasters and things like that. So it's kind of like that old saying from the musical Man of La Mancha where um, uh, the sidekick uh, says, you know, um, it doesn't matter whether the rock hits the pitcher or the pitcher hits the rock, it's going to go bad for the pitcher. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we're going to learn whether we choose to learn through positive, uh, joyful methods or painful methods. It is our choice. See, one and of the things that humanity is making collective choices now at this time as we speak. We're setting the direction of how we'll move into this next next phase. See, one of the things that I've kind of been watching very carefully is the American and by extension other political systems, other, you know, citizens of other nations, other nation states, other governmental forms. But obviously being closest to this one, we have a chance to watch this one, you know, closest of all. And one of the things that I've been trying to explain, and this is where Laura is going to come in in the next hour, is why does it seem that about one third of the population appears to be really anchored and attached, tethered, connected, bound by, longing for, I, I can keep going if you want, the past. And the other two-thirds appear to be willing to embrace the uncertainties and the extraordinary richness of the future that is going to bring some of the past with us, but is really looking forward to a whole bunch of new things. Is this a, a American people metaphor for this idea that certain people really find change fearful? I think they do. Uh, again, you know, um, people are are willing to stay with something that is painful just because it's a known thing rather than try their luck at something completely different. And this this has always been the case. Not not anything that's happening exclusive to, to now and this particular cycle. Well, I you know, it, it may it may relate to, you know, <laughs> matter remaining in motion and staying in that motion until it's acted upon by some stronger outside source. Okay, bringing in Newton and inertia and momentum. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, there seems to be a real fear factor. It's not just trepidation, it's almost like stark terror among certain parts of our population about change, about the other, about other people, about, I mean, the whole migration thing, fearing people coming to the experiment, which was founded on everybody except Native Americans coming here one way or the other and beginning something totally brand new that had never really existed on planet Earth before, and yet being steeped in that history, in that, you know, extraordinary unfolding experience they seem to basically want to call a halt and say no more no more no no more change as if you can yeah. stop the river yeah and and um you go back to traditional metaphysical sources blavatsky for instance 
who talks about the great sin of separateness. And this is the big lesson that we have to learn on this planet, uh, that if we didn't have gender and religion and politics and ethnicity uh, to divide us, we would invent things to divide us. Hmm. Because this is the big lesson to overcome and to learn that we are part of this greater one life. And humanity itself is a one life, but complete with diversity. The oneness of consciousness with the diversity of form. Hmm. And, and unfortunately, people on a, a, on a subconscious level, I think people get the idea that we're supposed to be one family. But because people are only focused on the form, the outer picture of things, they figure, well, if the form is the same, then we'll have our one family. If everybody's the same religion or everybody is the same ethnicity or the, the same political party. And so they try to get at this oneness through the form, but that doesn't work because forms is not supposed to be the same. It's supposed to be beautiful and diverse. See, this was the whole idea of Star Trek. You know, Gene's little medal that he was literally sitting on the floor, the Idic carving. He was a, a gemologist when I managed to reach him by phone many, many decades ago. He was creating this emblem to be worn initially by Spock, and then it was discussed on many iterations of the show, the Idic, infinite diversity in infinite combination, which was supposed to be the kind of founding principle and philosophy of the Federation. Right. There appear to be a, a lot of people now who are really embracing the idea of diversity, and they're doing it in very practical ways. Like, look at this last election for the Congress. More women of color, more women, more diverse backgrounds. More. We have the first gay Indian elected to represent, I think, Kansas, of all places, Dorothy. And yet there's a whole contingent of people who seem to be terrified of, of, of their, their neighbors, even though their neighbors aren't doing anything that they haven't done for a very long period of time. And we don't have time to get into the details because we are literally at the bottom. I'm sorry, the top of the hour. I'll get my clocks uh, right side up. You're on the other side of midnight. My guest so far has been Georgia Lambert, our resident metaphysician. In the next uh, half hour, we're going to be joined by Laura London. and We're going to kind of talk about psychology and how it explains uh, within, shall we say, a more Western mainstream scientific perspective these impending changes. And then I'm going to regale you with some really, I mean, it's just mind-blowing research. I don't know what it means, but it's solid, it's reproducible, and it's trying to tell us, I think, something profound. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show 
and all previous 350 plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Mm-hmm.